So good morning. As always, I count it a tremendous blessing and privilege to open God's inspired, infallible word with all of you. May God himself bless our time together. Last time we were together in the gospel according to Matthew, we talked about how we are now on the backside of Matthew's chiastic mountain, having seen together the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13, which, as we said, are the peak They're the high point of Matthew's gospel account. We began our descent down the mountain. There was the account of Jesus being rejected by his neighbors in Nazareth. Then John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet, had to die at the hands of the wicked Herod. Then last time we saw Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 men, plus women and children, and his walking upon the Sea of Galilee. And we said that all of these things are pointing us to something. We are headed in the direction that Matthew is headed, because Matthew is headed in the direction that Jesus is headed. And that is to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the resurrection, and to the Great Commission, which closes out Matthew's Gospel account. That's where we're going. And as I said last time, that everything... Everything that happens from here on out, everything that Matthew records in his gospel is strategic. Strategically done by Jesus and strategically recorded by Matthew to get his readers to glorious Calvary and to the Great Commission. So let us together again this morning have that in view. If you would like to follow along with me, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. The first 20 verses of Matthew 15 will constitute our sermon text for this morning. Now, please bear with me. I'm going to begin the sermon this morning in an attempt to offend as many of you as possible. Seems quite an odd thing to say, I know, and perhaps it is even more an odd thing to do. But if you decide to hang around until the end, which I hope you will do, I trust that the three reasons for this will become clear to you. So I guess I should begin with a plea for patience and grace from all of you. I must tell you that this particular approach to this morning's sermon came to me on the morning of Thursday, November 16th. So it was about 10 days ago, and the wee hours of the morning, actually about 3.45, if you must know. The Lord and I often do sermon prep in the 3 o'clock hour. And perhaps you're offended by the language, the Lord and I do sermon prep. If that's the case, if you're offended by the idea that the Lord and I do sermon prep, if you think that idea is either preposterous or presumptuous, or both, then I have to ask you the following question. Would you rather have me stand up here and say that this sermon was created without any input from the Lord at all? Would it make you feel better if I told you, yeah, what I'm about to say is just me, a small, fallen, feeble, fragile man alone with his thoughts in the early hours of the morning? Is that what you came here to hear this morning? I'll tell you, there's a lot of that going on around in our community and in our country and in Western culture, the mere thoughts of men So if that's what you want, there are plenty of places you can go next Sunday for that. Might not even be a man you'd hear from some other place. Which means that the whole thing is wrong-headed from the start, from the time you walked in the door. Thanks to Pastor Mike's sermon series on gender roles and distinctions. That should be clear. And there we go with the patriarchy here, again, at Abiding Grace Church. Brother Steve, are you saying that your sermons are inspired, you know, like the scriptures? May genoita, pardon my Greek. May it never be. And I trust that will be crystal clear by the time your Apple Watch strikes noon. All of you who know me very well, 
Know that I would be the first person to tell you that you should take everything you hear here this morning and go and test it. Beat on it. Make sure you're sure that it's true. Because that's the only thing that matters. It's the truth that we want. It's the truth that sets us free. Because it's only the truth that sanctifies us. John 17, 17. Amen? And no, for the record, I never spent three years and tens and tens of thousands of dollars getting my MDiv at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. This is true. Some of you have even asked me about this, and I'm obviously very open and honest about it. But I did, in fact, have an opportunity to take the Bible Knowledge Exit Exam from PTS on a whim one afternoon. And if I told you my score, then I'd just be bragging, so I'm not going to do that. And frankly, I'm pretty sure that had I actually spent the three years and the tens and tens of thousands of dollars getting my MDiv at PTS, I probably would have ended up getting a worse score on that particular exam. What's the point, Brother Steve? The point is this, I'm not going to pretend to stand up here and not know what I'm talking about. How am I doing? Still a bunch of people not offended yet, okay. Here we go, I'm going to press on. Here's an interesting thing. When Pastor Scott and I began this sermon series in the Gospel according to Matthew, way back in December of 2019, with a sermon that I preached entitled, The Exciting Genealogy of Jesus, neither of us could have guessed that at the time, the Lord had sovereignly ordained that I would preach this Thanksgiving weekend, 2023, on the topic of tradition. But alas, here we are. As we head into the holiday season, it's time for us to talk about tradition. Tradition, beloved. Tradition with a capital T. We all have them. Let me begin by saying that traditions can be wonderful things. Like all of you, we have some great traditions in the Vinay household. In fact, just a week or so ago, Jen came home from the candle store and she said, Smell this! So I smelled it. Because that's what obedient husbands do. And I just started tearing up and I said to her, This smells like our home at Christmas time. It was balsam tree for those of you keeping score on that one. So please hear me. Traditions can be wonderful things, but traditions can also be dangerous, even deadly, especially when they're not even recognized. And this is the first reason for my approach this morning, because I want us all to see that traditions can be dangerous. So let's have a look together at some of our most beloved traditions, which, as I warned, may offend you. Here we go. Have you ever really thought about Santa Claus? Have you ever really thought about how anti-gospel the message of Santa Claus is? Have you ever really thought about the fact that Santa doesn't actually give gifts? Santa gives good stuff to good little boys and girls and brings bad little boys and girls lumps of coal, or worse, depending on your tradition. Friends, it's not difficult to see that Santa is not bringing gifts. He's paying a wage. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace as a gift, but according to what is due. Santa is anti-gospel. And so is it any wonder that our culture has rejected Jesus as the reason for this season and embraced some fat guy in an ill-fitting red leisure suit? Let's spend just a couple moments thinking about that other great Christian holiday, Easter. Which is a little ridiculous even to say, since it's most likely that the word Easter is derived from the name of a pre-Christian era mythological goddess. But let's just go with it. You ever done Stations of the Cross? Or been to a Good Friday Tenebrae service? The word Tenebrae means darkness in Latin. 
At these services, songs in a minor key are sung, and as the service progresses, the lights get dimmer and dimmer, in remembrance, of course, of the darkness that fell over the land as Jesus was hanging on the cross at Calvary, Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. These services can be very emotional. And therein lies the concern. A person can be moved at a service like this in such a way that he or she thinks that something spiritual has happened. But the result might not be any different from the emotional response that is gleaned from watching the movie The Notebook. Please note, friends, that the guy who wrote the beautiful love story, The Notebook, is now divorced from his wife. Apparently, the lovey-dovey ending to the notebook really actually didn't quite take. But I was talking about tenebrae services. Are you aware that Jesus might not even have been crucified on a Friday? It's going to leave that one hanging out there for a while. How about so-called Easter Sunday? That's not what we call it here, but again, let's just go with it. There may be some people who refuse to attend Abiding Grace Church because we don't have poinsettias on the altar on Easter Sunday. To which I respond, it's not an altar. And anyone who calls it an altar is blaspheming. Didn't see that one coming, did you? And then there are the two-timers, right? These people who go to church on Christmas Eve and Easter Sunday. And they're convinced that they're Christians, right with God and headed toward heaven. And some would say to me, Brother Steve, maybe they are. How do you know that they're not? You can't see their heart. True. True. But then I hear from that same person, Brother Steve... Asking for a friend. I know this woman and she and her husband need marriage counseling bad. Her husband, oh, he doesn't love her. I just know it. He only comes home to see her twice a year. And he never reads her emails or her text messages or her letters. And they never talk. And I'm sure that he never even thinks about her even when he does come home those two times per year. How should I respond? Should I say something like this? Dear woman, how do you know that he doesn't love her? Can you see into his heart? Stop being so judgmental. How many people don't even go to church on Christmas and Easter? They don't go to confession, nothing. But they still think they're Christians. Every ten years when that census survey comes around, Christian, check. And they say things like, I ain't going to no church. Ain't nothing bunch of but, but a bunch of hypocrites in there. Amen. And then there's the spiritual but not religious people. You've met these people, right? You know what I say to those people? Spiritual but not religious, huh? The Spirit wrote a book. Have you read it? And truth be told, these are some of the most religious people you will ever meet. The problem is they can't see it. Do you see what I'm saying? We all say and do things because that's the way we've always done them. And these things give us a sense of religion. And listen, please, these things give us a sense of righteousness. And in so many cases, we haven't even given these things one biblical thought. And beloved, that is dangerous. And that is exactly what we're going to see in our text from Matthew 15 this morning. And please listen. Please hear me. I'm not even saying that some of these things are inherently bad. Please understand. Certainly, certainly not any more bad than washing your hands before you eat. Anyone here opposed to that particular practice? 
which we'll actually see in the text this morning. But if we're not careful with our traditions, we don't hold them up and examine them in the light of the inspired, infallible Scripture, we can be lured into believing that we're something that we're not. Like a Jewish scribe or a Pharisee. And yes, I know some of you are thinking, Brother Steve, you didn't even say a word about infant baptism. I simply don't have time for that, my beloved Baptist brethren. But it is no secret where I stand on that particular vestige of bad second century theology. That would be your hint for the morning. Now please hear me. In all of this, what some I'm sure will call attacks on traditions. Please listen. I'm not attacking any particular thing and I'm not attacking any particular one. As Pastor Mike sometimes, right? Preach with my eyes closed. I'm not looking at any particular person. And I'm most certainly not forcing on anyone a list of rules about which traditions anyone can have or frankly enjoy. That, beloved, would be a clear violation of the new covenant law of liberty. What I am doing is this, and I trust that you see this. What I am doing is providing an exercise in what the Apostle Paul calls taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Jesus Christ and His gospel and His word. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It's the command for all of us. Now, finally, to our text. Some of you are offended that it took me so long to get to the sermon text this morning. I'm guessing then it's safe to assume that you were the last holdout, which is fine. Everyone's now been offended, and I think I've even offended myself in all of this rambling at some point. So here we go. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Let's stop there for now. So here in Matthew 15, coming of course out of the narrative in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus is still ministering in and around the Sea of Galilee, about 75 miles to the north of Jerusalem. And scribes and Pharisees come from Jerusalem and ask him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, the Gospel writer Mark provides some commentary at this point. You don't have to go there. Mark chapter 7, Mark writes this. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. So let's remember the scene. Jesus and his disciples are out in the green pastures of the Galilean countryside, and they had recently been reclining in the fields and eating loaves and fish. And more than that, (coughs) at the end of Matthew chapter 14, we read, if you want to go there, verse 34, right at the end of Matthew chapter 14, And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they were pleading with him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were cured. Talk about disgusting. Not only was Jesus not enforcing the tradition of the elders by allowing his disciples and these Jewish riffraff to eat without washing their hands, but but he was touching sick people at the same time. 
So these Jewish religious leaders confront Jesus about him and his disciples breaking the tradition of the elders. Friends, please hear this. There are none. There are none so blind to the dangers of their traditions as religious people. And the lowly, gentle Jesus answers the religious types this way. Beginning in verse 3. Let's look at it. And he, Jesus, answered the Jewish religious leaders and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, And he who speaks of evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And by this, says Jesus, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. So here we have Jesus responding to the question to the accusation of the Jewish religious leaders of his day, as he often does, by asking a question back to them. Verse 3, you want to ask me a question? Fine. Let's have it. Let's have a go. I'll ask you a question. Why do you religious types transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And of course here Jesus is not referring to the issue of hand washing. He'll come back to that. But he instead confronts them about their tradition referred to as korban. Which term we heard from Mark 7 from the reading earlier that Jason read. In summary, listen please, the Korban tradition held this. A Jewish man could dedicate his possessions to the temple. There were provisions for this in the Mosaic law. But by Jesus' day, there were Jewish men, sons of poor parents, say, who would dedicate, dedicate their possessions to the temple, though they were only pledged for a future time, but not actually given. So the son who had pledged them would retain those possessions and he would manage them. And if his poor and hungry parents came to him in need, he could easily, listen, he could easily, with the blessing of the Jewish religious leaders, who ultimately would gain control of those resources, a son could look his hungry parents in the eye and say, Sorry, Dad. Sorry, Mom. I can't give you any of what I have, for I have made them korban. I have dedicated them all to Yahweh, our God. And Jesus knows this. He understands this Korban tradition, which has grown up around the Old Testament provision, which was a practice, by the way, in the Mosaic Law. It was designed by God in His law to promote holiness and righteousness and the consecration of Israelite men to the one true God. But now, but now had become an excuse for those same men with the Jewish religious leaders as accomplices. What once was a righteous practice that dedicated men to Yahweh had now, by Jesus' day, become a means of selfishness and greed and an excuse for a man to neglect his needy parents. And of course it should go without saying that to neglect one's needy parents would be a clear violation of God's command in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus confronts this awful tradition head on. 
You have invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. He says to them. Look together at verses 10 and 11 again. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Jesus here now returns to the issue of ceremonial washing about which he had been confronted earlier. And he points out here very clearly what the issue is with that particular tradition, which betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of their reason. Reality. And that is this. The primary problem with men and women is not that they are defiled on the outside and thus in need of a good hand washing, but that they, we, fallen sinful human beings, all of us are defiled on the inside. We'll come back to that. Very briefly, I want us to focus on the Pharisees and the scribes. And I want us to see two things. This is very important to see in the text. First, I want us to see very clearly that Jesus, beginning in verse 7, applies an Old Testament prophecy to them, the scribes and the Pharisees. Please look with me again at verse 7. Jesus says, You hypocrites... Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Here is a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, which was also read earlier. We don't have time for it this morning, but it is clear that this woe is being cast upon Jerusalem in Isaiah 29 by Isaiah for their hypocrisy, for their vain worship, for their ignorance of God's word in Isaiah's day. That is true. That is true. He pronounces judgment on Jerusalem, which ultimately came to pass in 586 BC when the Babylonians burned Solomon's temple to the ground. But here is what I want us to see this morning. Please look again at verse 7, Matthew 15. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish religious leaders of his day in the first century. And please pay attention to the pronouns. Verse 7, Jesus says, You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Jesus takes this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 29, and listen, he applies it to the Jewish religious leaders to whom he is talking. And I'm going to leave that there for now because there will be more examples of this in the rest of Matthew's Gospel. They are coming. But suffice to say, this is an important theme of Matthew's Gospel. And for those of you who are really paying attention, you might remember we've already seen this once in Matthew chapter 13. I leave that for you for your afternoon. Second, I want you to see how the Pharisees and the scribes reacted to Jesus' statement in verses 10 and 11. Let's look at it again, please. Matthew 15, verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Verse 12, Then the disciples came and said to him, Jesus, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? 
But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Here in verse 12, we see the second reason why I began the sermon this morning the way that I did. I wanted us all... To feel the weight of this confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his day. This sermon then is an attempt at what the amusement park types refer to as the immersive experience. I began this morning by saying some offensive things to you. Because I wanted you to feel exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes were feeling when they were confronted by Jesus. So often we just read over these things. And that's fine. Please, keep reading. Keep reading. Keep reading. But every once in a while, someone has to come along and get us to feel what we are reading. And what, friends, is Jesus' response to the offense that was taken by the Pharisees and the scribes? Was it, oh no, I should go back and peck their heads and make them feel better. Gee whiz, I, I just hope they'll like me from now on. Verse 13, But Jesus answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. See, beloved, please, please look at this text. Jesus didn't actually care about the fact that he wasn't particularly liked by religious people. Mark tells us that after this, Jesus left the crowd and entered a house. And the following exchange takes place. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 15. Please look at it. Matthew 15. Verse 15. Now Peter answered and said to him, to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. And here we have arrived at the third reason that I began the sermon this morning the way that I did. And that is this. The most offensive thing that I will say to you this morning is that what comes out of your mouth comes out of your heart. And what comes out of your heart is an abomination to God Himself and defiles you before a holy and righteous God. And because of these things, because of these realities, because of these truths, please hear me, the most offensive thing that I will say to you this morning is this, my dear friend, you can only be saved by the electing grace of God. Because there's nothing inherent in you that can qualify you for eternity in the presence of the one true God. And this, if this grace is not received by you as a gift, then you will spend all eternity suffering for everything that you've ever done, everything that you've ever said, everything you've even thought. That's it. If you don't stone me for saying that, then don't stone me for anything I said 20 minutes ago. And maybe you're saying, wait, 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 what? Wait, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I understand. I've been 
I've been hearing about God's grace my whole life. I, I've been going to church all this time. I, I, I put my money in the basket. And I've never, I've never been offended by the idea of God's grace. Well, let me be clear and explain it to you. Do you really see what Jesus is saying here to his disciples? He is describing in the clearest of terms the condition of the fallen human heart. Verse 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immorality, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. This, friends, is who you are. This is who I am. Apart from the grace of God. This is a description of the fallen, sinful human heart that was given to you originally when you were knit together in your mother's womb. This, friends, whether you know it or you believe it or not, is what condemns you. And it is, frankly, you. How many times have you asked a person, what qualifies you to get into the kingdom of heaven? What qualifies you to stand before a holy God on that last great day? When St. Peter asks you at the pearly gates, Friend, why, why should I let you pass me into eternal bliss? How many times have you asked someone that question? The last time for me was not four weeks ago. At my kitchen table. I've asked this so many people this question so many times and the answer always comes back the same way I don't care whether they go to church or what church they go to. Well, Steve, I've been a good and decent person and I never killed anyone. And well, I, I went to the church on Christmas and Easter I even bought a poinsettia and I, I put it on the altar. It was so pretty up there. I did this. I did that. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I, 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 I. How will you plead? And you know what? I, I love it when they give me this answer because when they give me such a horrendously wrong answer, I get to tell them, literally, it's all hogwash. Hogwash that will condemn you to an eternal hell on the last day if you answer like that. Look at what Jesus says about your heart. Look at what comes out of it. Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, lies, slanders. I didn't say it. I'm just reading it. These things that come out of you will not qualify you to stand before a holy God on the last day. And so I always ask the person this question. If that is your response, if your good works, the things you did, the things you didn't do, if these are the things that qualify you for heaven, then please tell me, why, why, why exactly again did Jesus have to die? Jen was there. They always say the same thing. That's a good question. Don't know. Never really thought about it. The most offensive thing that I will say to you this morning is the most offensive thing in the entire universe. And that is that you have nothing, listen, you have nothing of any value to offer a holy and righteous God. Your good works, this same prophet Isaiah calls them filthy rags. And if you're not offended already, that literally means clothing stained by menstrual flow. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. Go do your little digging in your dictionary. Your mere religious observances that you think can save you, they're nothing but hypocrisy, and God hates it. In fact, these will be the very things that condemn you on the last great day. 
I mean, let's reason together. Isaiah said that too, by the way. What does Jesus mean exactly when he says, quote, Apart from me, you can do nothing. End quote. John chapter 15, verse 5, if you'd like to go look that one up. That word nothing there in John chapter 15, verse 5, it's a perfectly good, clear, theological, easily translatable Greek word. It means nothing. Why were the Jewish religious leaders so offended? Let's get back to the text, Matthew 15. Why were they so offended at Jesus for his statement? Look at it again, verse 10. After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. Wake up. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Isn't it obvious? Isn't it because Jesus is telling them that they had turned the religion of Yahweh into something that was merely external, into something they could accomplish on their own through their useless ceremonial washings? That they had traded the blood of the substitutionary sacrifices for their own fig leaves of works righteousness. That's why they were offended. Isn't that why you were tempted to be offended by what I said a half hour ago? Jesus says, no. It is not the outside of a man that is in need of cleansing, but the inside. We must all come to the place where we realize that our wicked, sinful hearts need to be ground to powder. We must all come to the place where we realize that our external works, yes, our traditions, however good they seem on the outside, these, if we trust in them at all, these are a vile stench in the nostrils of God. Say this at Bible study all the time. It's like one drop of arsenic in a tall, cool glass of water. Anything that mixes our works or our decision or our tradition into this glorious grace of God is deadly. It will kill you. Listen, Paul tells us that these things have a form of religion. They have a form of godliness. But then he says, they have no power. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 5. And he would know, wouldn't he? He's a former Pharisee. He lived this. Jesus is not like Santa Claus. Not even close. Jesus gives his gifts of free grace not to those who, are, who deserve them, but to those who don't. Haven't we already seen this very thing in the gospel according to Matthew? Again, I'll look up for later. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. Jesus says to the Pharisees, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Don't you see that so much of what passes for Christianity is nothing but the blind leading the blind into a pit? Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. Churchianity in our culture is going away. It is being overrun by secularism and crass paganism. And that's okay because churchianity never saved anybody. And I'm not saying anything new or different. Please hear me. The very first sermon that John MacArthur preached at Grace Community Church, where he still is ministering, the very first sermon he ever preached was called, entitled, How to Play Church, February 9, 1969. Please listen to what he said 54 years ago. And I quote, Somewhere along the line we've got to proclaim that man is a sinner, that he's separated from a holy God, and that in the eyes of God he's an object of God's judgment. He's a child of wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians. To boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, to boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ, to boldly proclaim the truth about man and his sin is to divide. 
The true church of Jesus Christ is not a religious institution which welcomes everybody. It is the body of Jesus Christ set apart unto God, uniquely married and wedded to this self-same Christ, redeemed by faith. And no one outside of that faith, redemption can be a part of it. For that is the requirement for the church. Listen, and it is our task as a people and a preacher to warn those who have not received Christ, to warn them in love, but to warn them nonetheless how they are in danger of the terror of the Lord. God has set in order the requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It has nothing to do with a building. It has to do with Jesus Christ. Calling Christ Lord or anything else is not enough. It is doing the will of God that is the answer. You say, well, what is the will of God? Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, he says, God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. That's the will of God. That is what God's will is. This is literally His will. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but me. That's God's will. In John 5.39, the Father comments on His Son and says, And this is my will. And then Christ points out that the will of God is that He sent Christ, that everyone who sees Christ, who believes on Christ, may have everlasting life, hearing and seeing and believing and receiving. This is God's will. End quote. This is our message. We must stop messing around, beloved, and playing church. And we must do what Jesus shows us to do here in this text. We must fix our gaze on the Word of God. We must make sure that there are no traditions, that there's no religion creeping into what we're doing. What happens... Just. What happens when the Bible-believing churches lose their 501c3 status and get shut down so that none of us can go to Good Friday or Christmas Eve service at a faithful church? If your solution to that problem is that you will go to a non-Bible-believing church for those services, you might just be a religious person. We must humble ourselves. Our hearts must be ground to powder by the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And that same Holy Spirit comes with His heavenly broom and His heavenly dustpan and He sweeps up all those pieces, He sweeps up all that powder and He gives you a new heart to replace the old. A new heart that has passions and desires directed toward the only one who can save you. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not yet been offended by the grace of God, it may very well be you have not yet understood the grace of God. And if you were more offended by the things I said at the beginning of the sermon than by the things that I've said here at the end, you might just be a religious person. And I just ask you to go away and think about that. The grace of God is the most beautiful doctrine in the universe. The idea that a sinner like me can be given the gift of perfect righteousness, free from any cost to me. But we almost we must also see that the grace of God is the greatest offense to the sinner. This is its design. And this beloved is it's power. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There was a song from a couple of decades ago that said, I'm so thankful that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. And yes, I realize that this song was being sung at the time by a guy who is now a drag-dressing apostate named Derek Webb. I, I get that. But if God could speak to Balaam through an ass in Moses' day, he can surely speak truth to our generation through an apostate musician. The point is, 
Is this you? Are you literally thankful? It's it's Thanksgiving weekend. Are you thankful that you are incapable of doing any good on your own apart from the work of the Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? We all have to get there. Because that's the only way that the gracious and glorious Savior Jesus Christ can get any glory out of our lives. I'm wrapping up. One theologian preached it this way. He said this, quote, I believe that the only ones whom God actually witnesses by His Spirit and are born of Him are the people who come to Jesus Christ and say something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm going to obey you and love you and serve you and do what you want me to do as long as I live, even if I go to hell at the end of the road, simply because you are worthy to be loved and obeyed and served and I'm not trying to make a deal with you. This you, friend. The new covenant law of liberty compels me to exhort you to go forth and enjoy your holiday traditions. And I mean it. Enjoy your traditions. Enjoy your families. Enjoy what it is that you do. I most certainly plan to do so. Listen, we've been listening to traditional Christmas music in our house for more than a week already. You can judge us if you like. And we're all going to sit around as a family and watch Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney and White Christmas. Because that's just what we do. And I have candy cane cookies and mushroom soup coming my way on Christmas Day, courtesy of my mother. And I wouldn't miss them. Brothers and sisters, enjoy your traditions. They can be good things. They can be as simple as washing your hands before you eat. Enjoy your traditions, but examine them. And never, friends, never let any of your traditions, never let any of your religion get in the way of your unbridled devotion to God, to His words, to His commands, to His truth. Don't ever, please, don't ever let your religion get in the way of His pure unadulterated, matchless grace. Whenever your traditions get in the way of the Word of God, your traditions must always give way to the Word of God. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of grace. This is the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Beloved, the cross is enough The blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ is enough. The Word and the Spirit are enough. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or exchange gifts, or decorate your tree, or hang your stockings, whatever you do, beloved, do it all unto the glory of the Savior who has bought you with His blood. Amen. Let's pray.